0: Tonight, as part of a continuing series on modern history, we focus in, as we have done once or twice before, on one of the great movements that defined 20th century life and a movement which in some ways still persists, namely fascism. My guests are two historians who've studied fascism in its major manifestations quite closely. Stanley Payne is professor emeritus now of history at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He specializes in the history of Spain, Italy, and Portugal, and more broadly in the history of fascism. He did a major history of fascism, which appeared uh, only a few years ago. Uh, Peter Fritchie is professor of history at the university of illinois down in urbana champaign and he specializes in modern german and european history and has done major works on nazism one of them that we i think discussed on this program is titled germans into nazis uh, a new book which is a general treatise on the rise and nature of nazism is in the works at the moment gentlemen play along with me if you will for just a moment uh, with this little fancy I've got. Suppose Karl Marx is born, not in 1818, but um, in 1895. Uh, that would mean that... Now, really, at uh, in, in born in 1818, he wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848, when he was 30 years old. Uh, 30 years from 1895 would place him at 1925. Fascism has just appeared and sort of consolidated itself in its control over Italy. Is it conceivable that if we're writing something like the Communists Manifesto, but 77 years later, it, it, his opening line would be, this is what I'm laboring towards, a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of fascism.
1: He would have been much more influenced by nationalism in uh, the early 20th century than was the case in the middle of the 19th century. Not that nationalism was not influential then, but probably it would have affected him even uh, more than it did. As it was, he was not a nationalist, but a completely an internationalist in the middle of the 19th century.
0: Are you suggesting thereby, uh, Stanley Payne, that that, um, nationalism begets fascism?
1: Nationalism against fascism, although it takes uh, rather more than pure nationalism or simple nationalism to create fascism, but uh, nationalism is the starting point, and fascism, in a certain sense, is the highest stage of the most radical and intolerant kind of nationalism. Peter Presley, do you agree, and
0: incidentally, how should we define nationalism?
2: Well nationalism is the uh, identification of uh people with the nation and the recognition that the nation is giving them certain rights and entitlements and it is the primary social identification that people have had uh in the last 150 years there was a german uh, sociologist called uh, Plesner who wrote in 1926 that community and service to the community is the idol of our times and this is really what characterizes the post-world war one era is this this burning desire to be part of a whole to be part of a greater whole and to subordinate yourself to it that can encompass uh... socialism uh... but it certainly uh, also uh, animates nationalism and fascism let me offer you a
0: uh, description of fascism as given by a yet unidentified author a few uh, brief paragraphs he says, the foundation of fascism is the conception of the state, its character, its duty, and its aim. Fascism conceives of the state as an absolute, in comparison with which all individuals or groups are relative, only to be conceived of in their relation to the state. The conception of the liberal state is not that of a directing force guiding the play and development, both material and and spiritual of the collective body but merely a force limited to the function of recording results on the other hand the fascist state is itself conscious and has itself a will and a personality thus it may be called the ethic state the fascist state organizes the nation but leaves a sufficient margin of liberty to the individual the latter is deprived of all useless and possibly harmful freedom but retains what is essential the deciding power in this question cannot be the individual but the state alone. For fascism, the growth of empire, that is to say, the expansion of the nation, is an essential manifestation of vitality. And its opposite is the sign of decadence. Peoples which are rising or rising again after a period of decadence are always imperialist. And renunciation is a sign of decay and of death. How does that grab
1: you? Well, the the, uh, basic idea of fascism, of course, is an authoritarian uh, unity of the nation, an authoritarianism that creates and and enforces unity, and that uh, generates and releases the energy of the nation. Now, specifically, in the Italian case, this meant a doctrine of the state, of the role of the state and the superiority of the state, particularly as an institution. This would vary from country to country. In the German case, of course, the basic idea is the folk, the people, the race. race. This requires a state, but does not prize the definition of the state as such the same way the state was defined specifically in the Italian fascist ideology. Now, what I just
0: read you is written by a fascist. Clearly, then, he's not a German fascist. Uh, That specific German formulation would be Italian, obviously. Did you recognize the author? No. It's Mussolini well it, it from logical. his article defining fascism in the italian encyclopedia yeah, actually written by, by Giovanni Gentile but uh, but signed by Mussolini yeah right. well in the material I have it says he wrote with the help of Giovanni Gentile yeah. this entry for the italian the, encyclopedia a lot of help by Gentile <laughs> i think there was a um, so uh, uh, um, a significant sociologist who um, I guess was friendly to Mussolini and then served in the Italian Senate during the fascist years. I have Vilfredo Pareto in mind. Uh, is he as much a um, uh, a rationalizer, an ideologue for fascism as say Alfred Rosenberg was for Nazism?
1: Not at all. Pareto was one of the top Italian and in fact European political sociologists of the very early 20th century. Yeah, And his main contribution to political sociology was the analysis of elitism in politics. Yeah, and the concept of the
0: circulation of elites.
1: And the circulation of elites, uh, along with other Italian socialists like Gaetano Mosca. But, in Mm. fact, he was not a major contributor to fascism. He was simply one of the leading lights of Italian culture who was patronized by fascism. He did not contribute Mm. in a very significant way. Would
0: it be fair to say that the first um, fascist state, the first successful fascist movement, is, in fact, the Italian?
2: Certainly. Um, The Italians uh, in 1922 create the first fascist state and uh, in in many ways it became um, a model uh, for the Germans. But the Germans did have, uh, as Stanley said, did put emphasis on different things, in particular on the people and they felt um... and uh... nazis in in particular was an extremely revolutionary movement in that it did not make accommodations i in my view uh... as as the italian fascists did and in nineteen forty three after mussolini's overthrown hitler and goebbels uh, reflect on what is different between national socialism and fascism, and they believe that Nazism is more radical, was more consequential, was more racist, and was more willing to go after uh, to go after the elites. And they they reflect on the number of nobility in the Nazi Party in the 1940s and say, well, after the war is won, we're going to go after these people and get rid of them. Really, kill them off, you mean? Not kill them, but get take them out of the party, and thus. Um, And thus uh, uh, eliminate a weakness that they had uh, espied in the Italian. They had some
0: Hohenzollern Hohenzollern princes. That's right, and Hitler had
2: no love for them. Uh, Nazism was a radical restructuring of the German social structure in its intention.
0: But you both agree that whereas the the Italian fascists stressed the state, the organic state, for the German Nazis, it is what in their phrase. uh, Their common phrases is "Blut und Boden." How do you translate
2: that? Well, it's blood and earth. But the uh, I think the real emphasis uh, of the Nazis is on the people, and uh, and and to uh, uh, to create conditions for the prosperity of these uh, of the German people in a modern economy. It was not to return them to agricultural settlement, but it was to create an empire, uh, to create a prosperous consumer economy on the basis of race.
0: What is the significance, if if one credits that ideas have consequences, they sometimes have consequences that weren't intended by the original formulator of the ideas. If Charles Darwin had been alive to watch fascism rise, he might have been a little frightened or a little bit troubled as to what he had contributed to. Is it fair to say that Darwinian thought
1: is a stream that feeds into fascism? Yes, social Darwinism particularly. The way social Darwinism was developed by social theorists after the death of Darwin in the Herbert late 19th century. Spencer,
0: perhaps, particularly. Uh,
1: well, Spencer was actually a liberal, but there were other kinds of social Darwinists, particular theorists on the European continent in mm-hmm. Central Europe, who were not so liberal as Spencer. And this kind of social Darwinism that uh, really uh, converted the, the struggle between the species, the survival of the fittest, into the struggle between the races, and the nations of the survival of the fittest was a, a major inspiration for Hitler and, uh, more broadly, for fascist. Who were the general. major figures who, who, who laid that out? justin Chamberlain? justin Stuart Chamberlain who was an Englishman who became a German. The idea was set out, really, in the mid-19th century by a Frenchman, like Gobineau. Yeah. And a series of other theorists, sometimes in France, more commonly in Germany, especially in Central Europe, who really had established, at least, the ideological parameters of these ideas, though not the politics, before 1919.
0: The Mussolini didn't play with it in in that form. What he played with was a hearkening back
1: to um, the Roman Empire. In Italy, one found, for example, in the late 19th, early 20th century, Italian doctrines of race, as developed by anthropologists, quite different, because the Italian doctrines of race, which were relatively scholarly, done by more or less scientific people, held quite correctly that Italians were a composite or mixture of races there was no specific Italian race and so there was really no doctrine of Italian racism as one found in Germany uh, and in uh, some other areas by 1920 and so in fact Mussolini uh, championed the Italian people and the Italian state uh, and was inclusive in his politics, including, for example, very welcoming with regard to Jews during the 1920s and the early 1930s. Now, most recently, there has entered into Italian historiography a new vein. People like Giorgio Fabre, Michele Sarfati, Rayo, that in Mussolini, there was always a kind of crypto racism that began to come out as soon as Hitler came to power in 1933, and then, of course, was expressed finally when Mussolini decided to convert Italy into something at least, not the equivalent of, but parallel with German Nazism, with an Italian racial doctrine in 1938 and Italian anti-Semitic laws at that time. Did I catch something just
0: now? You mentioned an Italian historian named Salfatti. Uh, right. This is Michele
1: Sarfatti. Is in no relation to Margarita.
0: You understand why I am? Yes, indeed. Who was Margarita Sarfatti?
1: Uh, Margarita Sarfatti was Mussolini's favorite mistress, the only woman who ever influenced him politically or intellectually, and who was a noted Italian Jewish intellectual and art historian. And she also helped to fund the fascist movement in its early days. Well, she, she helped to stimulate the party in its most crucial yeah. time in the early mid-1920s, when Mussolini, mm-hmm. by comparison, was less decisive than she was about certain things.
0: We're focused on the 1920s still. Uh, Peter Fritchie finished this sentence, meanwhile, back in Sofia and in Bucharest.
2: Well, the uh, Eastern European uh, nations Felt that uh, the 20th century was the time for them finally to have a na- strong national identity. And the key was to create uh, a common cultural identity. And the uh, creation of this commonness meant, uh, among other things, ethnic homogeneity and uh, ended up. Uh, targeting leftist intellectuals as well as ethnic minorities so the process of ethnic cleansing in the nineteen twenties and thirties at least in its intentions was to create a unitary national subject uh, whereby these nations uh, would be strong and internally cohesive that was the fascist or quasi-fascist uh, now
0: though anti-semitism doesn't figure in original italian fascism and not until Mussolini imitates Hitler in 38 and passes some racial laws, but it does figure in East European fascism from the beginning, doesn't it?
2: Anti-Semitism is in- very important for Central Europe, uh, for Central European fascists, and uh, Jews in Central Europe were seen as a cosmopolitan or international, uh... minority increasingly after world war one and there was also less toleration for difference difference had been recognized before nineteen fourteen there was anti-semitism there were also many other things but now this marker of difference um, becomes increasingly as important as you're trying to create a culturally cohesive and eth- ethnically homogenous nation these were the scene is the premises for military and political strength one thing we've not
0: mentioned yet though I did mention Karl Marx will be opened, is the rise of the Soviet state, which precedes uh, the rise of fascism. Uh, The revolution is consolidated in 1918-19, and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics is off. Uh, They're on a rather difficult ride, but they are there. And uh,
1: communism figures very importantly in fascist preachment, does it not? The Soviet Union had a policy, basically, which was to promote, in revolutionary terms, the European Civil War. Uh, and uh, therefore, to ignite active revolution, violent revolution, insurrections in European countries, though it was really completely un, uh, ins- unsuccessful in doing so. And the great fear that was ignited by the Soviet Union uh, over much of Europe mm-hmm. during the 1920s and 30s was very fundamental in fascist politics and the fascist rise to power. In Italy, it was not the communists but the revolutionary socialists against whom Mussolini played, and without the opposition to whom Mussolini really could not have come to power uh, when he did in 1923. Though he started his public career as a socialist, did he not? Started as a socialist and then switched to becoming a national socialist, which of course some people say really is the shorthand term yeah. for fascism.
0: Well, the The German Nazis called themselves National Socialists. Is their official name. As such.
2: But the Communist parties in Europe were very small until the Depression. I think the Czechs had the largest. So it's not the Bolsheviks per se or the Communists per se. What it is is a fear of communism that's then projected onto relatively moderate Social Democratic parties. And one of the astonishing and to me still puzzling things in Germany, for example, is the inability of middle class conservative not so conservative protestants and catholics to it all give political room to the democ- oldest democratic party in germany which is the the social democratic party even someone like victor klemper the famous dresden diarist uh, a german jew yes, patriotic german jew could not bring himself to vote in the last free elections in 1933 for the social democrats the only bulwark against the nazis he he and his wife both threw their votes away the the middle-class obsession with the social democrats uh... is is in in many ways incomprehensible but it to me but it is a sign of the fear of uh, of communism in the nineteen twenties and thirties
0: does corporate money uh... flow into the coffers of the fascist parties because of the threat of communism
1: this depends on the situation most countries it did not yeah, and in Italy, in fact, it, it only did after the fascists began to move into power. This was also the case in Germany, even in 1932, Absolutely. 33. only after Hitler became chancellor, did he get the really big contributions.
2: It is a myth that uh, Big Capital uh, funded Hitler, and uh, not only is it a, a vulgar uh, leftism, but it misses the point that Nazism was an extremely popular movement, fueled in part uh, by resentments against big business, and that one has to understand the 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 dynamic quasi-democratic uh, energies behind the Nazis. It's very discomforting to talk about that, but both uh, workers and uh, middle-class people uh, ve- were very instrumental um, in creating what is a people's party. The Nazi uh, the Nazi party.
0: We uh, are due to uh, pause for some a uh, round of commercial messages. When we return, uh, I would like to get your response to yet another um, aspect of nazism or fascism generally namely uh, fascism as a kind of aesthetic revolution or at least as an aesthetic movement The the symbology of italian fascism of german nazism uh... is um... rather striking and you just wonder could they have could the Nazis have gone as far as they did without the swastika, without that great red flag with the swastika in a black circle? Uh, could the fascists have gone as far as they did without the fascists itself as their symbol? And without their, the kinds of uniforms and the kinds of marches and uh, the, all the aesthetic claptrap uh, that surrounds these mass movements which come to power. Uh, so fascist aesthetics is what I'm after when we return right after this. And we return to Stanley Payne and Peter Fritchie, both of them historians who have focused on um, fascism as a key movement within and which helps to define the very nature of the 20th century. I'm venturing into territory that I know nothing about. I'm just working on some impressions. I haven't read broadly in the aesthetics of fascism, but I've had a sense for a long time that they, they represented graphically, musically, differently than did the predecessor
2: regimes. The fascists were very in, uh, very interested in, in marking themselves off from the past. In mm-hmm. many ways they rejected the past, there were some vague national traditions of the eternal Germany, the eternal Italy, but ultimately they rejected the pre-World War I regimes, um, the liberal and the bourgeois world that those encompassed, mm-hmm. and tried to create something modern, something young, something new, and with a sense of egalitarianism that we're all in it together uh... one race uh... and and one people and this was very much part of their appeal the uniforms talked as much about uh... egalitarianism as militarism and uniforms march this was um... Di- uh, this was a dynamic uh, to change the world the germans constantly talked about the new the new germany the new beginning um, the New Departure. This was very much huh? what the Nazis tried to correct. How did up. their uniforms differ from the uniforms of prior eras? The uniforms were uh, actually quite simple yeah. and were designed in order not to create distinctions among... Uh, uh, the people, whether this was the Hitler Youth or whether it was the Wehrmacht or whether it was the Reich Labour Service or whether it was the League of German Women, there was a there was a simple, clean cut to the uniform to create uniformity across social and religious um, divides in Germany. Was the
1: same true of the Italians? Even more so, because we we have to distinguish between modern style and artistic modernist style. All fascist movements wanted to be modern in style, as Peter has explained uh... the nazis were rejected modernist artistic style in the sense of expressionism abstractionism what we call modern art uh... specifically as such italian fascism was begun in part by the original italian modern art movement of italian Mm. futurism uh... which was the most uh... The avant-garde sort of thing one could find in Italy. So in the in the Italian case, it was the most extreme forms of modern art, uh, and uh, Italian fascism uh, even uh, hosted international film and art festivals where they invited in the Soviet Union to present its new kind of vanguard art. So in the Italian case, one sees it much more directly uh and more fully than in the german case because it embraced artistic specific modernism as well as the general modern style
2: i think the difference is fundamental i think the italian fascists still wanted to participate in modernist art movements whereas the germans Uh, adhere to what I call a fantasy of autonomy, where they were completely self-absorbed with themselves. The key artistic movement in Germany is film, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think what the Nazis basically wanted to do was to create a sort of a screen memory, a screen identity where Germans would go into the movies and see themselves as the Nazis wanted to see them on screen. We are three university professors sitting at this table.
0: Uh, which makes the following question quite relevant i think how did european intellectuals particularly the ones that were academically based in those countries that went fascist how did they react did they differentiate themselves did they distance themselves or did they rather eagerly lend support and rationalization to the movement?
2: well in the german case it's it's really quite frightening both students and professors were actually a hotbed of um, nazi sympathy professors might say well there's a little bit too much vulgarism here i i don't have an affinity with hitler himself but the basic Uh, sympathy to what was called the national revolution in 1933 is very manifest and Mm -hmm. the only exceptions would have been uh... jewish professors social democratic professors who were immediately kicked out in 1933
0: we have the great uh, the the famous instance of the provost speech given by heidegger heidegger 1933 thereabouts
2: that's right heidegger was one of the many prominent uh... german intellectuals who immediately um, put himself into uh, the ranks of of the Nazi Party became a Nazi member. Um, there's m- the intellectuals that we now think of as German in 1933. Those are the ones that immigrated. Those are the ones who were uh, put into prison. But the vast majority of professors and the vast majority of students uh, had uh, real Nazi sympathies.
1: And the students proportionally more than the professors. One question I used to put to my undergraduates was what kind of people exactly in German society, what sector of society, was the most pro-Nazi? And they wouldn't know how to respond, and I would say, people just like you, the university students. Mm, exactly Because, so. in fact, the proportion of university students was greater than that of any other sector Why of do German we, society. How do we account for that?
2: Why uh, were students drawn to, to such well, the tra- fascist movements? The trauma of World War One. Uh, Germany is a defeated nation. Italy is not defeated, but thinks it hasn't quite won. And so Italy was on the winning side of World War One. All the values of the past are 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 um, are not affirmed by the defeat, and so Mm -hmm. you begin to think, how are we going to get out of out of this situation? So you look for something new, and it was precisely the professional and the intellectual classes that sought new solutions to Germany's problems, and the whole emphasis was on new solutions new expertise new ways out of the crisis so they really started to think here's the problem of history how are we going to solve it And they came up with startling horrifying solutions
1: the new elite young nation is the basic idea Mm -hmm.
0: has it been ever thus at least in modern history that uh, university intellectuals and certainly university students are not merely essentially responsive Uh, to uh, positively responsive, resonant to fascism, but in fact uh, fight for it and help to establish it.
1: Well, we're talking about the 1920s and 30s, particularly the the 30s in Europe, and that was a particular time of crisis with certain kinds of social and political and economic... We see fascism
0: flourishing in Romania, for example, essentially from the universities, don't we?
1: Especially, but Romania was a a very unique case because of the sudden hypertrophy of the university population. There was, in ten years, a 400% increase in an economically underdeveloped country in the university student population. So that was a special case of obviously the, the hyper-production of unemployed young intellectuals mm. who were therefore as unemployed uh, elitists, a uh, really fair game for fascism, especially in the Romanian case, one of the major examples.
0: We've not yet talked about something that you've given a great deal of scholarly attention to, Stanley Payne, over your um, long and distinguished career, namely the Spanish Civil War and the rise of Spanish fascism. We've not yet mentioned Francisco Franco and uh, his colleagues. Uh, is that a special instance that needs uh,
1: somehow some theoretical uh, modification? It's one of the most peculiar cases, because prior to the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, fascism was weaker in Spain than any uh-huh. other large European country. But that was because nationalism was very weak in Spain. Spain had lived outside of the competitions and the struggles of most European countries during the late 19th and 20th centuries, not been involved in World War I. Uh, had a slower rate of uh, cultural and social mm-hmm. change until very recently most european countries and it experienced very little uh, new nationalism and hence as a result little fascism down to the beginning of the civil war, so that it wasn't so much a question in Spain of the f- of fascism creating the civil war but the polarization between right and left creating fascism. However, the civil war was a civil war between right and left between the revolution and the counter revolution and this meant that the new spanish fascists were really caught in a broader process which was counter revolutionary uh and in many ways neo traditional and right wing the franco regime therefore was born with two different polarities, rather contradictory, which created a certain amount of cognitive dissidence, a kind of new Spanish fascism, very much like Italian fascism on the one hand, but then a neo-traditional Spanish Catholic religiosity on the other. And this was a competition and a contradiction not really worked out until the end of World War II, when it became clear, of course, that fascism had lost. And the Spanish regime swung very sharply toward Catholicism and a Catholic corporative identity. Even under Franco. Even under Franco, and lived out the last 30 years of Franco's life basically with this Catholic corporative and economically developmental identity downplaying its original quasi fascist roots. Yeah.
0: Part of this larger picture, of course, is that there arose in yet other countries, including this one. And surely in Britain, uh, and in France, and in the Low Countries, fascist movements, which um, clamoured very noisily and perhaps had some temporary success, um, yet they didn't uh, convert the mass, and they did not attain power. I suppose, though, if Germany had won the war, uh, the um, the Belgian or the Dutch communist, uh, the Dutch fascist parties would have instantly taken over and become well, the reigning governments.
2: The fact that the Allies won World War One seemed to reaffirm uh... their social system and their political system and that then inhibited didn't completely eliminate but it inhibited um, the movement of really radically mm-hmm. reconsidering the basic political premises of the nation and that's what fascism did for the loser countries for italy and uh... and and for germany but fascism once in once successful in germany became a powerful example of what you might call sort of a regenerative social mm-hmm. movement that might inject energy and dynamism into the country particularly into even to england into the united states particularly in the throes of the great depression The united states had thirty percent unemployment was as bad almost as badly hit as germany so that there was some um interest uh, in 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 fascism precisely because of its energy
0: We uh, have some commercials coming again. (coughs) I offer you a particular interesting personality who might uh, lead us into a discussion of fascism in the Western non-fascist world. Uh, That personality being Sir Oswald Mosley, the founder of the British Union of Fascists. We return directly to Peter Fritchie and Stanley Payne as we do a brief survey of fascism elsewhere than in Germany, Italy, and uh, uh, in Central Europe. First, though, these words. I was raising the question of fascist movements in the West, fascist movements that did not succeed to attaining ultimate power. Uh, And I reminded you of a very interesting figure, Sir Oswald Mosley, once a member of the British cabinet,
1: who kind of left it all and founded a fascist party. But some people would say that the title of his organization, the British Union of Fascists, is the ultimate oxymoron, because fascism is so non-British. Uh, M- M- Mosley was a, a, an excellent example of the kind of uh, radical young leftist who wanted a, a, a different kind of nationalist alternative. And one finds him in France, in Italy, in various countries, that turn to fascism. And yet, of course, his fascism really could not go very far because it was modeled, first of all, on Italian fascism. It was so non-British, it just didn't have enough to work with. Uh, it, it, it hit a wall about 1934. And then, of course, the leadership was all imprisoned and interned for three years during World War II.
0: Were there fascist movements in this country? One remembers something called the Silver Shirts.
1: Oh, yes, there were definitely fascist movements in the United States, more than one, though no, very small. There were fascist movements in virtually every single independent country in the world in the 1930s, but usually very small and without the, the kind of national crisis a combination of political and economic and cultural crisis that one found in European countries uh, with political mobilization that made possible the development of significant fascist movements that one found them basically only in European countries it was especially a European disease in the 1920s and 30s despite all of these efforts to imitate fascism outside of Europe
0: In evaluating uh, this aspect of the history of the 20th century one comes inevitably to um, fascism uh, when it, as it wrought, that is, in, in its Nazi incarnation, as it wrought its satanic masterpiece, namely, one comes to the Holocaust. And even more broadly, to the genocidal exterminations worked by the Nazis in Eastern Europe. They did indeed uh, kill, the figure is arguable, at least half a million gypsies probably. And it was part of their philosophy, their racist philosophy, that um, it was in the cards that they would thin out uh... the poles and the russian populations wouldn't exterminate them they're just too many of them and they're needed to be slaves in the new order But the, the living room, Lebensraum, would be made in the east in the Drang nach Osten the march towards the east or the, the surge towards the east um, so uh, that's what it all came to finally the, the, uh, the expo- question, the co- crucial question, That's why I, I'm leading to a counterfactual issue. Milton Himmelfarb some years ago did an article published in Commentary whose title gave the whole argument. It was, No Hitler, No Holocaust. Is that true, Peter?
2: Yes, it is true, I think. Um, the... There were anti-Semitic movements uh, in Germany. There were uh, large political movements that were anti-Semitic. There was the so-called anti-Semitic paragraph in many um, social movements, the largest paramilitary Veterans Association in Germany, the National Conservative Party in Germany, many student groups, all prohibited uh, Jews from membership. But it was the the Nazis, uh, and Hitler in particular, that thought that the regeneration of the german people was dependent on getting rid uh getting germany rid uh, getting rid of germany's jews one way or the other uh that was the uh special contribution of the nazis and of the uh group around him well, the
0: goal was to make germany clean of jews i think the term was juden rein wasn't it
2: that's right and and and, and that doesn't that doesn't mean we killed them not at that point no it does not but once germany's empire uh grew Uh, greater and greater, with the invasion of Poland and the invasion of the Soviet Union, there were increasingly uh, more Jews in Germany. Then what happens is the war of movement becomes uh, increasingly a war of attrition. Once you don't have a war of movement anymore, you cannot conceptualize moving the Jews outside Mm. of the borders of the German Empire, which was the thought all the way until Mm. the fall of 1941 with the idea of putting them in Madagascar. Um, once once that is no longer possible, there's not going to be a quick defeat of the Soviet Union, there's not going to be vast amounts of Siberian space that the Germans can use as a dumping ground, the Germans are stuck with the Jews, and then the only possibility from the Nazi mindset is uh, their physical elimination. There has been a long
0: argument among historians, particularly in Germany, uh, historians of Nazism, uh, between the two positions, the one called functionalist, the other called intentionalist. You're sort of sounding the
2: functionalist interpretation right now, aren't you? The, the, the Hitler talked about physically eliminating the Jews with his biological metaphors of the Jews as parasites and the like. And so you can draw a line from 1919 or 1920 or Mein Kampf to the Holocaust, and yet um, there's there's so many other factors that have to uh, come into play before actually you have a, a genocide in which norway's jews and albania's <laughs> jews and the jews of rhodes and tunisia are brought in um... and that requires a uh, m- much <laughs> more complicity not just hitler and it requires a war
0: and in the vans document as we have it the conference after the holocaust had really been already launched uh... and Heydrich is telling Nazi functionaries, here's what we're going to do from here on. In that document, they give, he presents a list of all the Jews of the world and the numbers in all the countries, including the United States. The implication being,
1: when we win the war, we're going to do something about the Jews in America. Well, that, that would be the idea, because the notion was eventually to follow up the victory in Europe with a world war, which would defeat the United States, but Hitler got ahead of himself and was already in the world war by 1942. Once achieving that victory, of course, the whole process could be consummated.
0: Would the German people have allowed that?
2: A war on the United States?
0: No, the full extermination of all the Jews that
2: no, they would Germans not. could get their no. hands on. The Germans, uh, I think most Germans um, sympathized with the Nazis and even endeavored to try to be good Aryans. Realized, uh, accepted the premise that Germany needed to be cleansed in some sort of way in order to be invigorated, which meant casting off uh, the weak in their own population and excluding from all aspects of German life so called aliens, primarily Jews. Um, but once you're asked, are you going to murder. Uh, mm-hmm children women whole communities no uh, i don't think most germans would have done that but nonetheless they were complicit in uh, a military reorganization of europe which which was uh, premised on race
0: but i offer you even with regard to what you've just said the title of uh, daniel goldhagen's book hitler's willing executioners that book is essentially an indictment of the german people it says the german people went along with the exterminations most of them didn't do the killing but a few but 100,000 or more did the actual killing and the rest of germany basically by 1944 knew about it and did not call the nazis to account
2: i don't think the question is so much did the germans know and then agree upon, agree with a policy uh that was Auschwitz or the shooting in the uh, in russia I'm I'm not sure that they knew the full state of affairs. The key question is did the Germans more or less go Mm -hmm. along with um, the exclusion of Jews from German life in all its ways and a policy of extreme, audacious, uh, violent segregation of of European Jews from the rest of the population in Eastern Europe? They did. That, uh, That they did. And they felt that that was the only rough and key way uh, for Germany to survive in the uh, 20th century. That, that was Nazi ethics.
1: I think that puts it very well. They, they, they approved of, went along with, a policy of rigorous and brutal anti-Semitism, not of mass ex- extermination. The mass extermination was Hitler's personal policy.
0: Therefore, playing the counterfactual, if Hitler had been killed in World War One, would one assume that history would have rolled out differently, and the Holocaust would never have happened, as Milton Himmelfarb suggests in the article I referenced a while ago. This
3: is
1: probably the case. Hitler never become the leader of Germany. The Holocaust as such, the mass extermination of European Jews, would not have taken place. There would have been other nationalist demagogues and leaders. There would have been other persecutions of Jews. Jews would have died in some numbers. But the whole mass extermination policy probably never would have happened.
2: No, I, I agree. But I, I think had Hitler died in World War I, you would have still had a version of ex- radical nationalism in Germany that was both directed against the old elites and the Kaiserreich, as well as against the left. And that formula is a dangerous and violent one. Yeah, You know, uh,
0: years ago, as a still very young academic, I had a job at Dartmouth College um, in Hanover, New Hampshire in hanover there was a a small colony of um, of germans from the Weimar republic the leading figure he uh, very old at the time was is his name brüning or bruning
2: the last oh heinrich brüning yes the Breuning. last the uh, last chancellor of the no Weimar no republic. the uh, third to last chancellor they they uh, switched quite a bit and he was let go in june 1932 to ah. give way to Poppen and impossible aristocrats who Pope had no Poppen, support yes who was arrested uh, in World War One in the New York City subways for leaving uh, documents trying to get Mexico to invade the mm. United States in World War One? Anyways, Poppen makes his chancellor for six months, and then it's about six weeks for uh, Schleicher, a uh, military man, and then comes uh, Hitler on, on the 30th of January 1933.
0: But Bruning, uh, as I remember from just one or two social occasions where I sat listening to him talk.
2: That's so? how my grandfather worked for him. Really? Yeah. As what? Well, my grandfather was in the Prussian finance ministry until uh-huh. uh, the coup against Prussia on the uh, 20th of July 1932, engineered by Poppin. Heinrich Bruning ultimately, against. All instincts in his body was willing to work with Republicans and Social Democrats, but what he really wanted was a restoration of the monarchy, yeah. which shows his anachronism uh, in 1932, his inability to understand what were the uh, popular dynamics of mm-hmm. politics. Basically, none of these people understood democracy, and uh, and and the Nazis were the beneficiaries. Uh,
0: as near as I could, as as I remember, and as near as he was coherent on it. Uh, Bruning at that time, uh, talking about it, seems to have been saying that um, Hitler wasn't all bad, that there were... I think he was saying something rather like what you've been saying, that uh, the Nazis appealed to something heroic and necessary in the German people. But right, when except
2: you can't separate that out from their racism and their willingness yeah. to use violence, which was uh, the lessons that they lo- believed they had yeah. learned from World War One.
0: Well of course he was totally condemnatory of all of that, Brüning was, to the extent that he was talking at all. He was a very old man. The central figure in that little group of emigre uh, or refugee Germans was a very interesting woman, Freier von Moltke, the widow of, um, what's, what's his first name? Helmut, Helmut von Moltke, Who's uh, descended from the von Moltke, who was a great military figure in the in the Prussian expansion, in the unification of Germany, and the unification of Germany, uh, and her husband, Helmut von Moltke, ran what the Kaiser Circle that was evolved. Now there you have opposition to the Nazis by significant intellectuals, which apparently developed rather early.
1: Well, the, the, there was opposition to fascists among European conservatives in all European countries, without exception. Mm -hmm. Germany was not unique in that. Uh, And in fact, the only significant opposition to Hitler was on the part of the German right Partly because, from particularly from 1938 on, as Hitler's policy became more aggressive, more oriented toward war and in war, the only sectors that had any positions in or near the government of the military that could oppose him effectively were the right. So the effective conspiracy against Hitler was the conspiracy of the right and the military from 1938 on. We are due for
0: some commercials again and then a brief newscast. The leftover question, and it's a very interesting one I think, is: is fascism still there? Or can it be revived? And why is the term still so rapidly uh, thrown about, as one accuses all sorts of people one doesn't like, of being, quote, fascist? We return to Stanley Payne and Peter Fritzsche directly after this. And we return to Stanley Payne and to Peter Fritcher. Stanley Payne is the author of many very important works, one of them a general history of fascism, uh, also his book, uh, Fascism in Spain and the Spanish Civil War, the Soviet Union and Communism. Uh, Peter Fritsche, uh... has on his uh, list of major works a book titled Rehearsals for Fascism, another, Populism and Political Mobilization in Weimar, Germany, and Germans into Nazis. And now you've got a new book, which is a general overall history. Coming of out, out being written, now. being written uh, these days. Um, we will be onto the phones in about 10 to 12 minutes, and we're opening the lines right now. The number, as ever, is 591 7200. 591 If you are uh, calling us long distance, the area code, of course, is 312. And if you are listening to us on the internet, particularly, and would rather get through via email, the email address is extension 720 at tribune.com. Extension seven two zero as one word, at Tribune T R I B U N E dot com or five nine one, seventy two hundred. Both modes of uh, communication are now open and available to you. Get your calls and emails in quickly, and we'll be with you, as I predict, in about twelve minutes. Um, is there any fascism left? One reads of neo-fascist movements in Italy, in Germany, in Austria, and for that matter. Uh, in uh, the low countries and in france uh, and uh, they aspire
1: to come to power again do they not the short answer is yes but not significantly there are again fascist movements neo-fascist movements that is specifically in a great many different countries but not a single one of them has the slightest chance of achieving power again because the particular Mm -hmm. elements of cultural and political and economic crisis that existed Mm -hmm. in the 1930s don't exist in the same way. Mm -hmm. What's changed particularly are the political and social and cultural values and attitudes over the last 70 years, Uh, the emphasis on materialism and egalitarianism uh, that simply don't give the neo-fascist movements any play. Nonetheless, one will find that the commentators often talk about this because fascism has become an almost meaningless word by the 21st century. It's everyone's favorite pejorative, and people apply it uh, ubiquitously to all kinds of things they simply don't like. Anti-feminists talk about feminazis, anti-Islamists talk about Islamofascists, and so on. Uh, the new populist movements that oppose the present structure of the welfare state in Europe are sometimes called neo fascists, and they're not neo fascists in many cases. They simply oppose the present structure and policies of the welfare state and political corruptness. Well, uh, so one has to be aware of the use of the term as distinct from any reality.
2: Well, that's actually bringing in the welfare state is quite interesting. Because that's exactly what the Nazis wanted to build: was a welfare state for healthy, genetically fit, non-Jewish Germans. Uh, so they they thought very much in terms of a social state. I think one of the big differences between uh, fascism in the 20s and 30s and uh, the politics of resentment today is today there is no imagination, for better or for worse, that one can reconstitute the polity that one can reconstitute the nation in a completely different form we think in much more conservative ways we constantly talk about what cannot be done the fascists talked about what must and could be done in the 1920s and 30s uh and that I think is the most uh, uh the, the, the the biggest difference between now and then i want to offer you two uh great fascist leaders
0: we've talked about both of them i want uh, i want to hear their voices um, first mussolini declaring War on France uh, and Britain. That would have been directly after the fall of France, uh, the or just before, of, the, just fall just before the fall of While France. While it was taking place, so that Roosevelt could then talk about. Uh, the Churchill could talk about that jackal Mussolini. Yeah, he got in late. He got in late, but he got in because he thought it he looked knew like who, this was he now knew who won. this was now the winning side. He, he thought he knew who won. We're going to hear Mussolini, and we're going to hear Hitler. Here first is Mussolini. <laughs>
3: Mussolini began. Combatants on land, sea, and in the air. Black shirts of the revolution and of the legion. Men and women of Italy, of the empire and of the kingdom of Albania. Listen. An hour, signed by destiny, is ticking on the skies of our country. An hour of irrevocable decisions, a decoration of war has been given to the ambassadors. To the ambassadors of France and England. Our conscience is absolutely tranquil. Il mondo intero è testimone che l'Italia del Mondo ha fatto quanto era umanamente possibile per evitare la <laughs> tormenta che sconvolge l'Europa ma tutto per the entire world is witness to the fact that Fascist Italy has done everything possible to avoid the storm that is now leaving the world. How does that
1: strike you? The rhetoric of Mussolini, of course, was fundamental to Italian fascism, and he was a good speechmaker. One sees, when everyone hears Mussolini, that he lacked the sturdy baritone qualities of Hitler, and it's interesting, of course, that he had to also make the excuse that Italy had done everything possible to avoid this when it was Mm -hmm. actually operating in a totally opportunistic way, though, in fact, Hitler said the same thing. Uh, In terms of the exact words of that announcement, one has to remember that even Mm -hmm. in countries like Nazi Germany and Fascist Italy, war could not be sold quite that easily. And there had to be an effort to make it show as though the other side had exhausted all possibilities or had attacked one first. Though in that excerpt that I read from his
0: definition of fascism in the the, um, Italian encyclopedia, he stresses that fascism inevitably leads to war, that the nation finds its fulfillment in the heroic challenge of war itself.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Mussolini made in the definition of Italian fascism war as really the guiding motif. The nation would prove itself ultimately only in war. At the same time, when you come to war you have the problem psychologically, emotionally, propagandistically of mobilizing people and you have to at the same time try to convince them that there was no alternative and they must go to war to try to motivate them effectively
0: politically. Now here's Hitler speaking in the uh, Sportspalast in Berlin in January 1942 so Germany is already well in war, and he is making some reference to a speech he had given three years earlier. The one in which he said that if uh, the war comes, this was in January of 1939, the, it will be the Jews' fault, and the Jews will pay for it. The fe- what, what is the term in German? Vernichtung. He says Vernichtung. Yes. Vernichtung. Yes. Destruction. Which is, uh, reduction. Reduction to nothing. Annihilation. 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 Yeah. Here he is now talking about the. Continuing process of the Vernichtung des Judenrasses because they brought this war.
3: We are in the same way that this is war only that only enden could be that the Germanic Völkers are not destroyed
1: or that the Judenrass of Europe is destroyed. I am.
3: 3. September im Deutschen Reichstag ist schon ausgesprochen. Und ich hüte mich vor voreiligen Prophezeiungen, dass dieser Krieg nicht so ausgehen wird, wie die Juden sich vorstellen, nämlich, dass die europäischen arischen Völker ausgerottet werden, sondern dass das Ergebnis dieses Krieges die Vernichtung des Judentums ist. Zum Zum ersten Mal... Zum ersten Mal werden nicht andere allein verbluten... Sondern zum ersten Mal wird dieses Mal das echt altjüdische jüdische Gesetz angewendet, auch um auch Zahn und Zahn. Je weiter sich dieser Kampf ausbreitet, umso mehr wird sich mit diesem Kampf, das mag sich das Weltjuden umgesagt sein lassen, der Antisemitismus verbreiten. Er wird eine Nahrung finden in jedem gefangenen Lager. Er wird eine Nahrung finden in jeder Familie, die aufgeklärt wird, warum sie letztendlich sie Opfer zu bringen hat.
1: Und es wird die Stunde kommen, da ah, der böseste Weltfeind aller Zeiten
3: Wow.
0: Would you, uh, Peter, do the honors and translate or summarize what he says there?
2: Well, it's uh, uh, I, I, uh, the uh, Hitler is referring to the choice of either the destruction of the German people. Or the destruction of the uh, Jewish race. He also makes reference to now is the first time where it will not be us who will bleed, uh, but it will also be others. The trauma. This is one expression of the trauma of World War One, where the Germans believed that they were the victims, that they had bled, that the German nation had been injured. And this is hard to understand, but necessary to understand that the perpetrators, the murderers, the Germans, the Nazis thought they were the victims and that the jews uh and rest of the world uh, was against them and that everything they were doing was to rehabilitate germany and in this way that was the way that they could sell uh the war what's also extremely interesting is that hitler in this january 42 speech says I made this promise that I will destroy the German people if war comes. Destroy the Jewish people. Destroy the Jewish people if war comes. And he dates it to September 1939. Actually, uh, the speech was given in January 1939. He's Mm -hmm. dating it to September 1939, which means that in his head, war and the extermination of the jews is is all in one and uh, is very much part uh, uh, is very much part of his program and this is the germans are getting about as much as they're going to get from him but he's very clear the vernichtung des uh, judentums the destruction of Jury. At this time in Berlin, there were massive posters everywhere blaming the war on the Germans, blaming the bombing of Western German cities. You keep cities. substituting. Uh, excuse me. Uh, blaming uh, the war on the Jews, and uh, and blaming the bombing of West German cities on the Jews. Yeah. The Berlin was just plastered in propaganda. Uh, against the jews so there is really some sense that people knew what was at stake in this war in nineteen course the, the logic of that uh, which may be
0: very confusing to some of our younger listeners is that um, it was implicit that the jews controlled the western governments all of the western governments this
2: is not propaganda the germans believe in the power of uh... of european Jewry and of world Jewry. these are the, t- in the terms in which they thought and they thought that germany was a weak beleaguered nation that was only now finally finding its strength thanks to its ability to think consequently about race and uh, to eliminate and destroy the
1: Jews and the result of course was the policy that Hitler implemented to take care of that once the major part of the war against the Soviet Union had begun uh... the Anti-Semitic orientation, of course, was part of something one found uh, in a weaker way in many other European countries, most particularly in Romania, but generally, of course, in much weaker formulation. In Germany, because of the German national crisis, as Peters explained, uh, in World War I and afterwards, the idea really took root in a very specific, powerful, paranoid kind of way. One of the leading
0: Romanian fascist intellectuals, Um, who also participated, not merely in anti-Semitic thought, but in anti-Semitic action uh, in and around Bucharest in earlier years, later on wound up as a much-honored professor at the University of Chicago. Though I think his colleagues did not know that much about his fascist history. It appeared only after uh, the death of Mircea Eliade, who was a great historian of religion.
1: He was indeed probably, during his time with the University of Chicago, the leading historian of religion, uh, historical anthropologist of religion in the world. But Eliade, like uh, most of the active young Romanian intelligentsia of the late 20s and 30s, was part of the extreme nationalist and Romanian fascist or iron guardist movement. As were other people like Emil Chioran, the writer, who eventually won the Nobel Prize in France many years later. Eugène Ionesco, the the literature and playwright, became very prominent in the French theater in the 1950s and 60s. You have in Romania uh, a, a very significant intelligentsia, which was during the 1930s really dedicated to extreme nationalism, anti-semitism, and the particular Romanian kind of fascism. I've worked you both rather hard, and we're going shortly
0: to the commercials after, uh, and then after that to the phones. But one last impossible question, uh, if you will uh, tolerate it. What is your explanation for the eternal anti-semitism of Europe, and uh, its close connection to uh, fascism wherever fascism emerges?
2: Well, the uh, the the unnecessary but not sufficient part of the explanation is that uh, the Jews uh, don't recognize uh, Jesus Christ and um, and therefore have placed themselves completely outside of the redemptive narrative of Christianity. Mm-hmm. That is not a full explanation, certainly not of murderous anti-Semitism. I think the other aspect is the uh... the jews were regarded as without a national home as cosmopolitan international and third i think that uh... in the beginning of the twentieth century in a uh... almost perverted democratic sense you have nations trying to create culturally coherent but militarily strong regimes in which orders of difference are no longer tolerated it's the uh... inability to tolerate difference then that gives uh anti-semitism and other ethnic conflicts uh, the lethal edge but I don't think we have uh, explained it um.
1: Well one has for centuries the motif of religious anti-Judaism for religious reasons but in the second half of the 19th century with the rise of European racial thought the new concept and phenomenon of racial anti-semitism the Jews as a pernicious uh, race Dedicated to the destruction of other races, uh, an idea enormously exacerbated by the European crisis of the first half of the 20th century, the European Civil War, the effects of World War I, the rise of intense nationalism, struggle with communism, the idea of communists being led by Jews, communism as a Jewish conspiracy, the Third Reich. This finally remitted after 1945. Now, in the 21st century, One has the new kind of European anti-Semitism, which is an anti-Semitism of political correctness. The idea of the Jews as the supporters of Israel, a national state uh, in the Middle East, uh, somehow contradict European notions of politically correct multiculturalism, and therefore are worthy of reprobation. This is the basis of the new anti-Semitism of the 21st century
2: which is uh, much less extensive than the old one hopes uh... history
0: continues uh... we are and we continue directly after we pause for some commercials onto your calls and to the email five nine one seven two double zero is the number if you've been trying to reach us by phone and hitting the busy signal we've now got a few lines cleared not everybody makes the cut uh... but we hope that you will try again uh, and uh, if you want to get to us via email, extension 720 at tribune.com. And we return to Stanley Payne and Peter Fritcher, and directly onto your calls for them. You are on the air. Good evening.
4: Good evening, Mr. Rosenberg. I, uh, I was born uh, in Rome, 1929. My father, uh, with Mussolini, came to Rome in 1922, march in Rome 22. And uh, I never, I was a piccola italiana. I don't know if you understand that A little Italian Yes mm-hmm. I was a piccolo Italian We had to go to school Everybody had to go to school And, uh, and uh, I never heard the lady named Margherita Never once I heard the lady Margherita uh, her, her, her girlfriend was uh, Clara Petacci His and girlfriend
0: uh, Mussolini's girlfriend at the time of his uh, execution, yes.
4: Uh, for many, many, many years. Yeah. Since I, since I was, uh, was growing up, was always Clara Pitani. Yes, I indeed. never heard Margarita. I don't know who this Margarita is.
1: Margarita was with him for much longer than, than uh, Clareta, but uh, that was for about a decade in the 1920s, early 30s.
4: And oh, before, Carencio, I was I born, before I was born. Right, <laughs> only in the last <laughs> years. Yeah, but anyway, my father was, um, uh, went to Spain for Franco, not for Franco, but he went to Spain because they were paying very well.
0: He fought uh, in the Italian Legion in Spain. Uh, uh,
4: Mr. Rosenberg. He didn't fight. He went there because uh, they were paying very well.
0: What did he do there?
4: Uh, they went with um, uh, civil uh, uh, construction.
1: I see, right.
4: Yeah, and they were paying very well. That's why the m- majority of the people that I knew, they went there for, for that reason.
0: How did you feel about the fascists and about Mussolini?
4: You know, you know Mr., Mr. Rosenberg, the last, the last person who was yelling and screaming, I'm still shaking. I'm still afraid when I hear that man talk, yelling and screaming. Is that so? I, I talk about Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I see Mussolini almost every day uh, in his limousine, uh, going to Piazza Venezia, uh, where he had his office. Yeah. yeah, and I see him many, 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 many times yeah, talking you know, at the balcony in Piazza Venezia. Uh, 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 history-wise, uh, 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 to the gentleman there, uh, 19, I have not. I was a little girl, but 1934-35, all the ladies in Italy, all the married ladies, they had to go to Piazza Venezia. Are you familiar with Rome?
0: Yes, yes, ma'am, we all know Okay, are you familiar
4: Venezia? with that big, big... Uh, uh, you know, where that, uh, sword, you know, the, the what do you call that? I can't even talk now.
0: The Victor, the Victor Emmanuel Monument? Okay.
4: Yeah. Okay. All the ladies in, in Rome, which it was all over Italy, but in Rome, they, they had to go there and donate their, uh, their gold, uh, wedding ring. They had a big, like a big, yes. uh, uh <laughs> Santa, you know, and they, they oh, all.
0: Man, these are interesting memories, but I fear we must move on. Yeah. I thank you but very anyway, much
4: for the n- call. Mr. Grozenberg? Yes, ma'am in 1944 where all the beautiful american soldiers came in june in rome i was right there and the, and, the, and, the uh, and montgomery stole the the glory of the united states and the soldier
0: thank you so much for the call um i'm sure that she has rich memories i was always tempted to ask her did she marry an american soldier uh, but that might have led to further autobiographical material, which, fascinating though it might be, would deflect us somewhat from our general inquiry. Here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air.
2: Hi, uh, this is Marty in Brookfield. Um, and I noticed that there's a book called The Other Nuremberg about the Japanese war criminals. And I was just wondering, how similar and how different
0: were, were the Japanese uh was the Japanese regime to the to the uh, fascist regime?
1: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, th- this is a complex question. The Japanese had no fascist movement. There was no fascist party, and yet, uh, as a largely military dictatorship with a policy of a peculiar kind of racism. Uh, and also a program of mass atrocity in China and some other places. They formed very much a functional equivalent of fascism. At the same time, the Japanese saw themselves as the liberators of East Asia from the Westerners, but they had their own concept of the Japanese race. And the, uh, the Japanese constituting not a pure biological race but a unique special race, whose emperor was descended from the gods and who were different from and superior to all other uh, east asian peoples now the japanese for example much more than the germans put into effect a biological and chemical warfare in china and killed thousands of people they did not have a specific program of racial extermination as hitler did in the holocaust But in their mass atrocities in China, especially to a lesser extent in some other countries, they were responsible for the deaths of millions of people. So one doesn't have the (laughs) specific kind of racial and anti-Jewish doctrine. In fact, they tolerated Jews in Japan during the war. But the Japanese Empire had its own kind of highly militaristic policy, which engaged in mass atrocity. And this led, of course, to the trial of Japanese war criminals in 1945 after the war was over. Our thanks to the caller. Gentlemen, here's a,
0: by email, uh, something from uh, Taiwan, uh, an American working in uh, Taiwan, I gather, who asks, if you were a non-German fascist in the 1930s and 1940s, did it necessarily mean that you were pro-German?
1: Not always, but it tended more and more by the late 1930s to mean so. In 1933-34, the first years of the Hitler regime, this was not the case. There was a major polemic by Italian fascists against German Nazism in 1934, denouncing, in fact, their racism and various other aspects of of, uh, Nazism. But as the Third Reich became stronger and stronger and more dominant, there were very few European fascists in other countries who could hold out by the end of the 1930s thirties and nearly all of them have become pro-nazi by uh, the end of that decade
2: indeed the future looked as though it would be a nazi dominated europe but the nazis sold all those other fascists down the river because the nazis were absorbed with the aryan people and their idea of race and really could not create an effective cross-european fascist alliance
0: I do remember though that when the tripartite uh, pact was formed uh, Germany Italy and uh, Japan uh, in November 36. Yeah. That uh, whether it was Hitler or somebody else, but somebody announced that the Japanese from
2: here on would be honorary Aryans. Whatever that was supposed to be. Well, I mean, for the time being, Hitler had no problems uh, with working with the Japanese. And I think, as uh, Stanley pointed out, there were really a lot of parallels. But when it came in Europe, Uh, to, uh, let's say, liberating the Ukraine or liberating Lithuania, the the Germans would have none of that. They said, we did not invade the Soviet Union in order to liberate lesser peoples in Lithuania or the Ukraine. This is for German living space. And this is more or less the German attitude. There are some exceptions. There were some working relationships with European fascists. But on the whole, the Nazis were completely self-absorbed with themselves and um, uh, rejected partnerships with other uh, European fascists.
1: And um, the relationship with the Japanese was peculiar and contradictory. Hitler realized for strictly opportunistic and pragmatic purposes, he needed a major ally outside of Europe. This was Japan. The Japanese did not fit into the Nazi racial hierarchy. In private, Hitler would occasionally refer to the Japanese as little monkeys or words to that effect. But of course, would never dare say that uh, in public. Uh, so that there was at least a working relationship. And yet, the Germans and the Japanese during World War II never really coordinated their war efforts. Only at the very end, in 1945, with the Germans sending the Japanese uh, the specifications for their jet fighter planes and for the enrichment of uranium. That came only at the very end. There was very little Mm. in the way of practical cooperation. They fought, really, two different wars in different parts of the world. Didn't the
2: Japanese uh, recommend that the Germans... um make a separate peace with the Soviet Union?
1: Right, right. They they did indeed. Uh, And uh, they had different geopolitical interests. So it was a very contradictory and somewhat dysfunctional kind of relationship, but nonetheless one that was maintained in purely political terms right down to the very end. Of course, with regard to other Europeans of
0: lesser races, as seen by the Germans, that, that that didn't stop them from organizing them into military units to fight alongside the Nazis, and also, of course, to help um, uh, staff the extermination camps.
2: But these were sideshows compared to what the Germans could have done, which was which would have been to uh, organize nationalities in the in the crumbling Soviet Union in 1941, mm-hmm. 1942. So compared so compared to to what they might have done. As a fascists rather than Nazis, um, the few partnerships that they created, I think, were, were relatively minor.
0: We are due for another round of uh, commercials, and also I note that we've now got some space available on the phone bank, five nine one seven two double zero, the number. If you've been trying to reach us, try again. For any question you've got or any thought you want to share, five nine one seventy two hundred. If you want to reach us by email, that remains uh, extension seven twenty at tribune dot com. And we return to our guests, Peter Fritchie and Stanley Payne, both of them historians of modern fascism, or 20th century fascism. Peter Fritchie at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, Stanley Payne at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Our phone number remains, 591-7200, and you are on the air. Good evening.
3: Hello. Yes, sir. I have uh, two comments. The first is, I don't like the blithe dismissal of the non-existence of fascism in the present-day world. You can only talk about it if you confine yourself to, say, Europe. Because the uh, movement exists quite uh, strongly in India. The RSS, which has existed since the 1930s, which modeled itself exactly after the fascist movements in Europe, is still a potent force. And the political arm of the party, the BJP, has won elections. And the second comment I want to make is that in a functioning democracy, once a fascist government gets elected, the fact mm-hmm. that they have to get reelected means they, they cannot do anything that they promise to do when they g- do get elected. By that I mean that the fascist governments in Italy and um, Germany were able to carry out most of their nasty things mm. was because they consolidated power and become essentially dictatorships. And that fact actually has to be taken into account by um, uh, people studying the reason for the um, development of fascism and uh, the persistence of fascism, even in uh, modern-day world. Uh,
0: The uh, the fascist movement in India, is this the movement that was begun by uh, Chandra Bose?
3: No, no, no. This was uh, uh, a movement which was essentially started out as a nationalist movement under the name of RSS. It was called the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh. And a lot of the, uh, the ideology and everything was adopted from the fascist movements in Europe. Uh, well, in what sense? What, what's what's wh- the brown shirts and uh, uh-huh. nationalism and uh, uh, identifying the problems uh, being caused by outsiders? In the case of India, it was Muslims, and that still exists.
2: Yeah, I think I think you're right. In the broad outline, uh, these are are similar things. When I was thinking about uh, fascism today, I was I was thinking about Europe, and this is also what I'm. Uh what I'm familiar with
3: I understand uh, sir. all I'm saying is if you want to understand the existence of fascism and the persistence of fascism in democratic societies I don't think you can simply ignore what is going on in a, with the world's largest democracy point taken
1: the uh, case of Hindutva is a very interesting case and you're quite right that the RSS originally was at least in part inspired by European fascism uh, the Hindutva case the RSS the BJP are examples of a kind of extremist religious nationalism Uh, and obviously have certain uh, parallels with fascism. Now what one sees in the case of India is the uh, BJP has uh, been in power uh, for some years And unlike European fascist movements, if they had a chance to get into power, they immediately converted themselves into dictatorships, into one-party dictatorships. You have to give the BJP credit. It did not do that.
3: Well, it did not do that because it is not possible to to get done in India. That's my point. My point is that once you become a governing party that has to fight an election again, you cannot do all the things that you promised to do to get elected.
1: Well, what a fascist party does is to see to it that it does not have to fight elections again. I understand, I understand, but
3: the rhetoric that they use in India to get elected is very, very similar.
1: It is is an uh, intolerant and a nationalist rhetoric. We have, of course, various kinds of intolerant and nationalist rhetorics all over the world at the present time, these things obviously have things in common with fascism, whether they really uh, recapitulate the full configuration of European fascism, however, is doubtful.
3: Oh, that's true. I agree with you there. And but I'm saying that uh, the persistence of fascist ideology yeah. in democratic societies should not be just confined to what's happening in the United States and Europe. You should look at it overall in the world.
0: Well, a, p- a point indeed very well taken and very well expressed.
3: I thank, thank you so Paul. Thank you very call. much.
0: Uh, that that uh, reminds me to ask you, what about fascism in uh, Russia or in the remnant republics that once composed the USSR? One remembers that shortly after uh, the, uh, the split or the, dis- the decommissioning of the USSR, there arose in Russia a movement called Pamyat, which is very nationalistic,
1: very right-wing, quite anti-Semitic. And there are other such movements, are there not? There are indeed. In fact, there are several directly Russian fascist movements now. Ten years ago, I was invited to participate in a conference in Moscow, 1995, about the danger of fascism arising in Russia. We were given by one of the new Democratic Study Centers a list of over 100 uh, Russian uh, nationalist parties and organizations, uh, a few of them at least, definitely neo fascist and, in fact, one will find in Moscow, probably more than any other city in the world, the new expression of Nazi kitsch as a kind of art form. Nonetheless, the conclusion we came to ten years ago at the conference in Moscow was that the greatest danger for authoritarianism in Russia really comes from the Russian government and the Russian state. Mm-hmm. And I think that is still the case in the year 2006 as well
2: i also would warn against um, equating fascism with simply the politics of uh, resentment and anti-semitism and authoritarianism because the edge the dynamism of fascism was precisely it was youthful it was optimistic it believed it could completely restructure the country and it got its energies from and its aim was to uh... destroy the old elites and in this sense it's very very different from um... Mm-hmm. splinter, anti-Semitic, or uh, uh, um, ethnic, uh, anti-ethnic uh, parties. Well, those youthful uh, Nazis uh,
0: who gave the party its uh, great uh, resource of enthusiasm and gave their lives, but those who didn't give their lives and went on to become middle-aged and now probably old Germans, uh, how do they remember their past? Are they much interested in it?
2: Well, 10 million Wehrmacht soldiers, these are not the first persons I would mourn talking about the World War II and the Holocaust, but 10 million Wehrmacht soldiers died. Uh, Even perpetrators can have traumatic events, and I think that uh, the sheer scale of suffering uh, that even Germans experienced uh, did uh, lead to reflection. Many, many Germans talk Mm -hmm. about their inability to understand why, back then, uh... they simply weren't more critical they understand intellectually the the youthfulness the appeal of nazism um but i do think that uh, over these 50 years uh, they have uh, broken from it and are trying to understand what it was about them then that got them so enthused so i think there is a critical process of engagement although i don't think that there are absolutely clear answers
0: and is nazism still the basic subject of academically-based German historians.
2: Well, it's certainly one of the major ones. Um, The discussion is simple is revolves around again and again the lines of continuity. What was it in German history that uh, made it possible for Nazism to uh, win such elections in the early 1930s? And what are the after-effects of Nazism in present-day Germany? Do you get
0: similar uh, preoccupations with the past in uh, Italy or for that matter in Spain?
1: No, not in the case of Italy. There's the, the, the reality, of course, that the crimes of Fascist Italy, though significant, were not at all of the vast magnitude of those of Nazi Germany, and were not really held against Italy by the Victor Powers as much as was the case uh, vis vis Germany, so that the Italians rather rapidly began to overcome their past. Also, uh, all nations live by myths, and in Italy, uh, there was immediately after the war, established the myth Of the Italian resistance, remember there was a civil war in Northern Italy in the last two years of World War II. Of the Italian resistance, Catholics and communists and socialists and liberals uh, against fascists. And therefore, for many years after the war, Italy lived with the myth that uh, Italy had been... uh, justified rejuvenated by the democratic resistance the new italy was led by the leaders of the resistance it was a different kind of italy and therefore it did not really have to apologize as in the german case and germans had
2: nothing like that uh july uh, 20th 1944 the plot to kill hitler by the generals uh does not weigh in the balance compared to uh either the uh the myth of the resistance or, or the the resistance itself in italy or france
0: People like Stauffenberg are
2: not remembered as heroes? They are, but they came too late. There were too few of them. Um, uh, The very fact that they were uh, a -hmm. small aristocratic group um, underscores their disconnection with the majority of the German population, which met the coup attempt in July 1944 with dismay. Uh, We
0: pause the last round of messages and then directly back to the phones 5917200. We return to Stanley Payne and Peter Fritchie, both of them uh, eminent historians focused upon Nazi movements in the 20th century. And, uh, gentlemen, a quick um, and uh, short uh, query uh, or comment from one of our listeners via email. Just a note, the Pan-Arabic Ba'athist party was fascist-inspired, an example of European ideology
1: influencing their colonial empire. Agreed? Uh, Yes, indeed. The the Baathist Party, when it began, first in Syria, spread to Iraq uh, in the 1940s was indeed European fascist inspired it was a movement in a certain sense of national socialism and one has to recognize that national socialism did not mean all out economic socialism but a particular kind of uh, socialist uh, orientation that socialized only part of the economy perfectly consistent with the regimes that developed in Syria and under Saddam also in Iraq. There's no question that uh, particularly the Saddamist regime probably is the regime most like a European fascist regime of all the governments in the third world in the later 20th century.
0: Did they work a similar appeal to blood or an appeal to national... There's a division, basically, a religious division in Iraq, which was kind of an artificial construction of a country, wasn't it?
1: Well, the appeal in Iraq could not be to, to, to race because the... the uh, uh, community of uh, Iraq was built up of three different uh, ethnic yeah. and religious groups, so it had to be simply to, to nationalism. Uh, and it could not challenge Islam initially very much either. So it was an argument basically of nationalism and of a national community, and also had the problem that in Iraq it was really led by the Sunni Arabs, who were only one part of it, and therefore it could not construct a truly integrated national society. It became much more of simply an internal terror regime than the Third Reich itself ever was with that back
0: to the phones five nine one seven two double zero good evening
2: just to play devil's advocate could we uh, make the case that fascism was good for spain and turkey and that it took two very chaotic places and brought them into the twentieth century and gave them order and economic prosperity
1: the problem here is you're inflating the term fascism in turkey there never was any significant fascism you have the case of an authoritarian guided democracy under Kemal Ataturk, which uh, never really aped uh, the extreme fascist doctrines at all, but was a form of progressivist Turkish nationalism that tried to make Turkey not more extreme, but simply more liberal and more progressive. In the case of Spain, the Franco regime ultimately uh, presided over the definitive modernization of the country, but that happened after World War II, and after the Franco regime had to some extent mutated itself and had eliminated its quasi-fascism to emphasize its Catholic corporatism and its economically developmental aspects. So this is a complex case, but it's really the the, the pseudo or semi-post-fascist part of the Franco regime that was able to lead Spain into full modernization.
2: The fascist argument against democracy is that it's inherently chaotic. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I know where you're coming from, but it's a difficult argument to make. I think the fascists have an intolerance for chaos, that, uh, that, that, and that's the problem, not the chaos always itself.
1: Yet in the
0: 1930s, both those regimes were definitely counted as fascist. In fact, the Kuomintang in China was often considered fascist.
1: Well, the Turkish regime was not necessarily considered fascist the way the Franco regime was, the way in fact the Franco regime, to some extent indeed its first ten years, was a, a kind of a fascist regime. The Turkish regime was, was a, uh, an extra European regime trying to simply to develop uh, a more progressive kind of modern nationalism. Uh, it was authoritarian, but in the sense of trying to model a parliamentary system, I think we really have to accept the out of regime uh, in Turkey from the fascist kind of model.
0: They wouldn't consider to be milder forms, then?
1: No, 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 no. It's, it's There's some not mild fascism. <laughs> you're either the real thing or you're not.
0: We thank you, sir, for the call. Thank you. And let's go to this one. Hello, you're on the air.
1: I'd like to play the what-if game with your two guests, uh, Dr. Rosenberg. What if the Axis had won World War II? Would Hitler have tolerated... Uh, uh, Mussolini. Uh, I don't think he thought of, of the Italians as much of the fighters because uh, during the Russian uh, in the Russian front, uh, Germany had to divert their troops to Albania to bail out the Italians who weren't able to uh, conquer Greece. So, what would what would uh, Hitler's view have been towards Mussolini had the Axis won?
2: Well uh, Stanley's the expert, but what I understand is that that Hitler stood by Mussolini very firmly and un- unless Mussolini had would have departed the scene, he probably would have stood by uh, the ally. But the Germans themselves uh, were pretty contemptuous of the Italians for many reasons, including those that you uh, make that you
1: mention.
0: We have that strange drama of the rescue of Mussolini
1: in captivity by. Colonel Scorsini, is that his name? Otto Scorsini, yes. It was quite dramatic. And he then delivered to Hitler. And delivered to Hitler. Yeah. And Mussolini said, well, it's finished. And, Mussoli- and Hitler said, no, it isn't. You're going back as the new fascist dictator, basically under a kind of German occupation. And this was the beginning of neo-fascism, the last two years of the war, the most radical phase, in fact, of Italian fascism. Peter's right that that Hitler always stood behind Mussolini personally, and Hitler's idea was that the Mediterranean indeed was the Italian sphere of influence. Uh, Of course, Hitler didn't live long enough to work out all of his ideas, The ultimate goal, although he originally apparently conceived this as something happening possibly after he was dead, was German world domination. So it certainly would require Italian fascist subordination, as in fact took place during the second half of the war anyway. Had Hitler won, Italy would have been subordinated, but it would still have had at least an honored place. But remember that uh, the Nazi scheme was a racial hierarchy, and though uh, Germans and their closest cousins were on top, there was in the hierarchy uh, superior, though not top places, for certain other ethnic national groups if they cooperated fully with the Germans. It was a hierarchy and had a very complex series of steps from top to bottom. Uh, Thanks
0: to the caller. Just a minute or two left. I must uh, tell you, uh, Peter, particularly, about a wonderful encounter I had some years ago with Alan Bullock who was one of the first biographers of Hitler, as we know, and then towards the end of his life did this great uh, plutarchian volume comparing Hitler and Stalin, but he tells a story of, an, um, of the disagreement he had with Trevor Roper, another British historian much interested in Nazi affairs, and they were Pondering the nature of Hitler, Trevor Roper said Hitler had rectitude. It's Trevor Roper's term, meaning he believed everything he said. He believed the Nazi program from early Munich days on to his death. And um, uh, Bullock re- represented himself as arguing, no, he was a mountebank. He picked up the anti-Semitism and a lot of the other stuff from the other uh, fascist parties in Munich because that was a route to power. Uh, but he was a mountebank ultimately who persuaded himself uh, by virtue of all that he had said publicly for so long persuaded himself that these were correct views but essentially there was something rather specious about the man and his his own commitment to nazism at the beginning
2: well i don't want to agree with trevor roper but in this case i do i i i think that you have to understand to understand fascism you have to undertake seriously their ideas um which which were largely put into operation this is not opportunism this is not power for power's sake uh this is uh self-love and other hate as the historian claudia kunz puts it and you have to take that very seriously
0: and what do you say then and there's no time left for it to the psychologist question what accounts for the intensity and the extremity of the man hitler
2: well i think there are psychological explanations but uh they've been offered but i think that this parallels other people other other movements in germany at the time um... there was a deep concern for the fate of germany after the end of world war one and deep suspicions about internal and external enemies and that's exactly what war does in a democracy it creates internal suspicions and external enemies
0: gentlemen i thank you most sincerely for a, uh, a vivid and very valuable conversation stanley Payne of the university of wisconsin-madison
2: and Peter Fritchie of the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign have been our guests tonight.